Welcome back to another episode of the CSK8 podcast. My name is Jared O'Leary. In this week's episode, I'm interviewing Melissa Raspberry. In our discussion, we talk about making educational lemonade out of lemons, using technology to collaborate in virtual learning communities, how people are learning differently through online communities, such as CS for All Teachers, which Melissa oversees, some suggestions for using different social media platforms to connect with other educators, and so many more topics that are relevant to today. As always, I include links in the show notes to the various scholars and publications that are mentioned in this interview. You can find those show notes by clicking the link in your app or by going to jaredoleary.com and clicking on podcasts. And if you decide to explore the other sections, there are hundreds if not thousands of resources on the website that are free. All right, so we're now going to begin with an introduction by Melissa. Hello, everyone. My name is Melissa Raspberry. I am the principal investigator for the CS for All Teachers virtual community of practice and also a principal consultant at the American Institutes for Research. I'm so glad that you invited me to attend today. Can you tell me the story of how you got into computer science education? <laughs> That's a very interesting one. I often say to folks that somehow I got dubbed as a quasi-expert here at AIR around computer science education, but don't have much of a background at all. I began my career as a third grade teacher in Durham, North Carolina. I eventually went on and pursued additional degrees and was able to secure a job at an education nonprofit here in North Carolina. And through that time, I really had an opportunity to understand and, and develop some experience around connecting teachers online and really being able to use tech tools to bridge the gaps between space and time and geography so that teachers could better connect with one another to learn and to grow as educators. And an opportunity became available to come here to AIR, the American Institutes for Research. And so I applied for that chance and got the opportunity. And one of the things that was part of that opportunity was taking over this CS for All Teachers community. At the time, it was called the CS10K community because CS10K was the project or the initiative that NSF had at that time. The previous person who was serving as the PI for that project was leaving AIR, and so they needed someone to come in and take in that position. And I will be honest and say that I was a little intimidated at first because I was going, I have absolutely no background in computer science. But what they really were wanting me to do was to kind of take that experience with connecting teachers online and be able to bring that to bear in this opportunity through the virtual community. And so that's where it all started. And that's been about six years now. And it's been an amazing learning opportunity to really better understand a computer science education field. Yeah, I think it's really important for people to hear that so many of the guests and myself don't have like degrees in computer science and whatnot. So some guests have no classes or have learned everything informally. Some have taken a few, etc. It's great to hear that like you can do well in this field and you can learn along the way as you're going. So you don't have to like worry about the fact that you might not have a degree in it. Absolutely. And that's sort of one of the things that I figured out pretty quickly about the teachers that we were working with. For one, as I came into the position as PI and was wanting to see how we could continue to grow the virtual community, my first task was help me find the really great teachers. Help me find those teachers of CS. And in making those connections and talking with them, it was exactly as you said, Jared, that most of the people weren't coming in with a degree in computer science. Many of them, as you mentioned, had never taken any courses at all. And so it's been a very interesting and enlightening opportunity 
to learn from this field because that was so different from what I saw in working with teachers in my past job that, you know, for the most part there, if you were an English teacher, you got a degree in English. Right. If you were a math teacher, you got a degree in math. And then there might be the, you know, of course, the education coursework with um, methods, et cetera, but you had that grounding. And again, I coming in as an elementary teacher, you get a degree in the content, but you certainly were in like child development, et cetera. And so it's been this very interesting thing of understanding this particular population of educators. And frankly, I think it makes them some of the most amazing and resilient educators we have because many in the field have had to take on the ownership and responsibility of their learning on their own. Now, don't get me wrong. Amazing professional development programs out there, just like yours, um, (laughs) with boot up. You know, a lot of it still has required a lot of self-teaching and looking for those opportunities to grow. And so I'm just excited to see where we continue to go and again, just applaud teachers and their resilience with everything. Yeah, that's a really good point about resilience and just being able to reinvent yourself by learning a new subject area and teach a new subject area. Like, I think that is more important, especially in 2020 with everything that's been going on with having to shift to remote learning and whatnot. So that's a really good point. What's a piece of advice related to education? It doesn't have to be CS education. It's a piece of advice that has really resonated with you. The advice would be to get out of your own four walls. You know, when we think of education and so much of what we do, you know, as educators, and I think back to my time in the classroom itself, so much of what I was trying to do with my students is to help them to kind of see the world outside of just the classroom, outside of just even their neighborhoods. But I think so often teachers get closed in within those four walls and by no fault of their own. Certainly there's so many things that they have to do and there's a long to-do list and they're busy and all of that. But I think that the more that educators can, I like to call it, find your tribe and love them hard, you know, find your people, like whoever that may be. And certainly, you know, I'm a huge proponent of social media as a way to do that. Social media and technology and being able to, as I was saying, you know, kind of bridge the gaps. Educators can feel very lonely within their own classroom. And so, you know, because there is so little time during the day to even partner with those, you know, across the hall from you or two halls over, really looking at opportunities and ways where you can, you know, find a community of folks who you can learn and grow from, I think is really critical. Because again, it's sort of what we want to do with students. So doing the same as educators of continuing to kind of look beyond just what you see, because there's some amazing things that are out there, instead of having to kind of learn it all or do it all yourself to be able to tap into, you know, a broader network and figure out how you can work together to do amazing things. Yeah, I like that. So when I first started working in education, I went into music education and started working with drumlines and teaching and whatnot while I was getting my degree. And I assumed that everyone was going to have the same amount of passion for percussion and drumline that I did (laughs) and quickly realized that that was not the case. So I'm curious, what was something that you believed when you first began working in education that you no longer believe? I studied in undergrad elementary education, and I remember in my multicultural social foundations course that one of the things that we did was to read Jonathan Kozal's Savage Inequalities book. And that book for me was truly life-changing. I had the assumption that everyone else sort of had the same schooling experiences that I did, that they had teachers who loved them, who wanted to see them to do well, 
that had access to the resources they needed. And now, mind you, I wouldn't necessarily say that I grew up in a hugely, you know, heavily resourced place. We were pretty, I guess, kind of middle of the road district, if you will. And some of the schools that I went to were maybe on the impoverished side of town, just by where the boundaries were and where I went to school. But I would say that I had a really good experience overall as a K-12 student in public school. And then when I got to college and decided to become a teacher, I read Savage Inequalities, I realized just how much there were so many inequities that existed. And even as that kind of bright-eyed, <laughs> just you know, soon to be graduate and then entering in as a new teacher, I kind of had this feeling like, you know, I can save the world. I can save every single kid. And while I absolutely do believe that I was able to help many children see themselves in a different light and feel successful and feel loved, I knew that there were bigger societal influences beyond what I could do in the classroom. And so it helped me to better understand that, yes, even while in the schools where I was working, they may not have some of the same inequities as, say, East St. Louis and other places that were highlighted in Jonathan Kozol's book. There were broader forces working against our kids and that, you know, kind of keeping up that, you know, one teacher can save the day mentality is frankly not the best model to have. And again, Teachers will always be heroes to me, heroes and sheroes to me, but I think it's more about what I've realized now is how much it's a, a much bigger macro issue and a systems issue of what we need and how we need to support kids. And frankly, to support our teachers, I'm a firm believer, if you support the teachers, the teachers support the kids, we'll get make sure the kids get what they need. And so, you know, but that though now I realize goes beyond just what happens in that classroom or in that building. You know, it's more about community support. It's about making sure that the kids and their families are getting adequate health care, have access to good housing. There's so many things because a kid doesn't just walk into your building and walk into your classroom and shed everything else that, you know, they were dealing with at home. <laughs> and all of a sudden you get to be the Shiro and save the day. Yeah, you can make that difference in that period of time, but they still walk out back to those same realities. And so that it needs to be, if we really want education to have the impact that it can have and teachers to have impact that they can have on students, there's broader supports that are needed. So one of the things that I like to do each morning and each night, I do some kind of a positive reframing of something that is negative. So if we were to look at some positive thing that has come out of COVID, one of the things is that schools, districts, teachers, family, etc., have a better understanding of the inequities that are going on with access to internet and technologies at home. Like in Arizona alone, it's in the double digits, the percentile of both students and teachers who do not have adequate internet access to actually like do like a Zoom call like we're on. So that's one of the things that I think has kind of opened up some eyes for a lot of people that, oh, there are some things that we need to address that are outside of just what goes on in the classroom. Absolutely. What I love to see is also the innovation that's come from it. And I think about that in conversations that we had here at AIR, one of our senior leaders was sharing that sometimes this disruption that leads to innovation <laughs> and that causes things to change much faster. So I think about, you know, the places that have taken to try to, you know, again, innovate and help those kids that didn't have access, putting routers on school buses and putting them out in the communities 
that's not long-term change, but it's a short-term solution that's getting at that and helping us to kind of think about, do we have to consider, you know, the ways that we've been doing things and doesn't need to look differently. I think another thing is, is shown the light on too, is just how much we really do need to have more in terms of differentiation. A number of my friends have talked about with their kids that, you know, they might've gotten activities that should have taken them three hours and it took them 30 minutes because they got done that quickly. You know, so are there things that that child may need, you know, additional levels of support to kind of advance their learning and the same sense of the other kids who aren't having that support and may need that, you know, additional remediation, et cetera. So I'm hopeful, as you said, that out of these very difficult times, we can begin to think about things differently because certainly, frankly, not a lot has changed about the education system in a long time. We've still been doing, you know, things in pretty much the same way as we did a hundred years ago in the ways that kids are learning. And so can we take this? And I love that, you know, being able to reframe that negative into something positive. Yeah. And when I say that, it's also taking into account the gravity of the situation and whatnot. So just in case anyone's like, oh, he's taking it lightly. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. Absolutely. With teachers not being in the classroom, or at least a lot of them, it's much more difficult to collaborate than it was previously. So I'm wondering, how has technology been something that has allowed teachers to better connect, not just within COVID times within this last year, but also just through your research working with virtual learning communities? Well, I think about computer science in particular when it comes to that, because if you think about it, you know, for those, and let's take kind of the different levels at which, you know, computer science education has taken effect. So, we have had tremendous efforts that have been put in place for many years now to help prepare high school teachers to teach CS courses. And so they've gone, they've been part of summer institutes and workshops, continued support throughout the year. And if you be part of a cohort of people that are learning together, you know, over the summer face to face. But then when they would go back to their schools, oftentimes they were the only one there that was teaching it. You know, some obviously have pushed and managed to kind of build up their computer science department, and maybe there's another colleague. But for many of them, they were kind of the singletons that they were the only ones in their building teaching computer science. Certainly, as you think about elementary and middle, as that started to come on, whether it's from doing like an hour of code or just kind of, you know, serendipitously getting excited, your kid got a robot for Christmas and you decide to start integrating that in your middle school science classes or something like that. You know, there too, there weren't a lot of people. It wasn't like there was this large contingency. And so I do think that's the value of where virtual communities can work really well. When you are that singleton and there may not be others in your building teaching that same content, to be able to connect with others, that's much easier to do online than it is to get in your car and drive across the district. Some cases there may not be anywhere to drive, you know, because you're the only one maybe in your whole district that's doing it. And so that I think is the power of virtual. That I think is one of those things that, frankly, I'm hopeful will be a positive outcome of COVID as well is this idea that, you know, let's think about the ways that we can stay connected virtually, again, whether it's within your own building or beyond, again, to be part of these broader, you know, networks of people. My concern is that, you know, because it's been something that's been forced upon us, that, you know, we're all kind of feeling now like, dear God, if I don't ever have to be on a Zoom call again, I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. We're all there. Like, we all feel that way. But 
you know, there's some value to that because it's allowed us to connect with people. Heck, it's allowed people to connect with families in a way they haven't too. And so I'm hopeful that some of those things of just being able to allow folks who would not otherwise have peers that are, you know, working on the same content areas again, and that's pre-COVID, you know, that those sorts of lessons will carry forward and that people will continue to tap into that in ways that they might not have before. So here's hoping <laughs> right. that some of those positives will continue. And what led to your interest in researching and creating a virtual learning communities? Because this isn't like something that you just decided to do with COVID. You've been doing this for quite some time now. It is, it is. And so it sort of kind of goes back to that, you know, when I was telling about like the lesson that I've learned that I didn't know in the beginning, I think even when I was in that social foundations class and reading about savage equality, that like led my mind more so to these bigger issues in education. Like I knew I wanted to teach, but early on I started to wonder, I don't know if my place in education was in the classroom. Don't get me wrong. I think it's the most valuable place that you can be. And I'm so grateful for the, you know, the four years of experience that I had as a teacher and a year that I interned as a principal because it helped me to have a, you know, greater understanding of schools and what that was like. But I always was drawn to those like bigger picture issues. Like, you know, what are these systems issues that we're working with? Like I was the one (laughs) as an undergrad that you know, when in our methods courses, they started talking about, well, you know, you'll have these assessments that you have to do when the kids do this. And I'm like, but what if we just didn't give the test? Like I was trying to be this revolutionary or something, you know, I think, you know, when I got into the field and then, you know, started going toward graduate work, again, my mind kept going to these like bigger systems issues and things like that. And so though I got my doctorate in educational leadership, I still wasn't sure if like, the district level leadership was where I kind of wanted to see myself. I got the opportunity to have an internship at a nonprofit where I eventually got that full-time job while I was finishing up my doctoral program. And that was where the work began with kind of looking at teachers and the ways that they could lead from the classroom within the field, not necessarily meaning Teachers have to become principals, principals have to become superintendents, and you know, that sort of thing. Although, you know, certainly we need great teachers who can become great leaders. But I started to get connected with work that was really about, you know, tapping into teacher voices and how, you know, as opposed to state legislators making decisions about schools, (laughs) what do these people know, truly? You know, how can we ensure that? teachers are part of the decision-making process. And so the project and the work that I was doing there was trying to elevate teacher voices meant that we were tapping into teachers from all over the place. And it, it was like a, a national organization local here in North Carolina, but we did national work. And so a lot of the work we did was virtual. And really, it was such a eye-opening thing, like where I wasn't sure of like, does this make me feel better? Does it make me feel worse? That regardless of where teachers were, they were having the same issues, you know, dealing with the same problems. There's never enough time. There continues to be more pressures that are placed upon teachers. Like we add new initiatives, but we never take away. I mean, the plate continues to get more and more full that we are making decisions without talking to teachers. (laughs) And then we wonder why things fail. Well, you know, maybe (laughs) if you would talk to the teachers. And so, 
it was through that work, just frankly, by necessity, and that we were wanting, you know, for projects that we were doing that were about, you know, connecting teachers, that sort of, we had to kind of tap into these technologies. And so it's interesting, because when I started working at that organization, I guess that dates back to 2005, right? Yeah, so about 15 years now. And that when we, when I first started working there, the most sophisticated technology we were using was a listserv like that. And so it's just incredible to think about the past 15 years and how fast, I mean, that seems like ages ago, we're like, what, a listserv? But truly, that's how teachers were connected. And so I kind of think about it now and I'm like, there is no way we would be dealing with that because truly on this listserv, you would have daily, you know, dozens of messages of teachers responding to one another. And we're not talking about quick emails. We're talking about very lengthy epistles, if you will, of responses. And to think that that would be way we would connect now is like, you know, laughable because no one would want to do that in the same time. But I just saw the value again of being able to bring people together. And what was exciting about that work is even then, like there were times where teachers were building very strong personal and professional connections with people they had never met before, but they were connected by technology. And so some of them would, you know, work together to put in a proposal for a conference, you know, kind of co-present together a workshop or whatever at a conference and would never meet until they were physically there face to face. And so, you know, I definitely saw the value and the potential of how, you know, being able to connect educators in ways that, they never would have had the opportunity to do so otherwise. It was just something that I thought was really exciting and a great way to be able to help build the profession. Yeah, it's a good point. I actually have a couple of coworkers that I've never met in person before. So it's interesting, like working remotely for the last three years. Yeah. I also am interested in virtual learning spaces and in particular, the informal learning spaces. So I wrote a chapter on affinity spaces and the implications of the informal characteristics of that works by James Paul G in formalized learning environments. So like, what can we learn from those informal spaces and potentially apply in like a classroom setting? I'm curious, what kind of scholarship has either informed or inspired your interest in virtual learning communities? You know, I kind of look to Eddie and Wenger, sort of the grandfather, if you will, of communities of practice. He's done some amazing work there. That for sure has been something. And then I think even just and this isn't like formal scholarship, if you will, but just seeing kind of what you were talking about, the informal thing, Twitter and the community of Twitter and really the value that Twitter has, I think is huge. And I think it's something that really has shown how we don't do a good enough job in thinking about professional learning in education for educators, because I think continuing to have that very much of like professional development equals attending a workshop, connected to seat time, being present and whatever that looks like in a face-to-face or virtual world. But that's not really how we learn. Like, what is it about, you know, now and everything else in the world? If I have a question or if I have something I learned, I'm not going to wait until it's time for a workshop to go find that information. Like I'm going to go seek it out and know that I can get my fingers on and like being able to find that in a much faster way. And I'm not sure, and I'll be honest to say that a lot of that I haven't delved into too deeply, but that is something in particular, like, again, when you can tweet something out, and I've done that before for presentations, 
I've been preparing for a presentation and said, hey, I want to share kind of some quick advice with folks about topic X. We did it out, been able to have a dozen great responses to give to people, you know, when I tweeted out that morning and the workshop is in the afternoon, certainly have been able to get better informed than I ever would in sending an email. And so I think we just, in general, that's a piece where we could be looking more about or into scholarship in that area and just in general about how we are learning differently and how we constitute learning. I think there's a huge space where we need to kind of look into that and how then that has an impact not only for students, but teachers as well. And what has surprised you in your research and development of communities like this over the years? I think there's a couple of things. One is that we still continue to struggle with how to measure effectiveness or measure engagement. And I think that that is something that, you know, with the projects that I've worked on and looking at, you know, being able, how do we demonstrate impact? It's a difficult thing because, for example, with the CS for All Teachers community, I could go and tell you how many members we have. I could look and tell you how many page views. I could tell you how long they're staying, you know, looking at Google Analytics, how long they're staying, time on page, you know, bounce rate, all those, you know, metrics, if you will. But I think we continue to struggle with figuring out, so then what's the impact or how is this truly making a difference? And I don't know that anybody's really figured that out yet because from past experience, again, with the previous job where I worked, I remember that there were times where we might have like a culling of the list of saying like, hey, you know, we're sending things out. Folks who haven't logged in by, you know, such and such date, we may resend membership or, you know, whatever, you know, just trying to kind of you know, kind of update the membership, if you will. And then we would start to hear stories from folks where it would be, oh, well, I haven't commented in a while, but I've gone in and I, I read this discussion or I grabbed this resource and I went back and used it with my grade level team and it changed, blah, 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 blah. It had this impact. I don't know how we really do that because unless it is a self-reported impact, <laughs> it's harder to do. And in a time where we are looking to see you know, well, what's the impact of this? What effect is it having? It's harder to do. Again, you can give those numbers, you know, page views, numbers, et cetera, but then then what? And then that truly doesn't tell us what it means to have impact. I firmly believe we are, but to be able to communicate that to others, I'm not sure that anybody's really figured that out really well yet. Especially when you have like a space like CS for All Teachers that it's a larger group. This isn't something that, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, it's not necessarily a, this is a professional development opportunity. You start here, you stop there, you do these tasks in between. That looks different than like what we're providing, which is this ongoing community space that's sort of a just in time, as you need it, come as you will, as you need it's harder to do that. And especially as there are more ways, because then you have, well, I can tell you the number of people in the community, but then I can also tell you the number of people that follow us on Twitter. Those numbers don't always match up. Right. And, you know, you may join in a webinar, but not be a member. There may be something from the webinar that changes your instruction. It's harder, especially as, again, we have all these different inputs to truly measure engagement, to truly measure impact in ways that people like to do it. It's just not an easy, it's really messy. And it's something that we continue to think about. Yeah, so much of that relates. One of the reasons why James Paul G ended up writing about affinity spaces, because he felt there is this 
inability to be able to apply communities of practice within like online spaces in terms of the way that Lave and Wenger originally framed it. And other people have also talked about this need for being able to better understand engagement and the ways that people communicate online in particular. So like there's a digital media scholar, Henry Jenkins, who talks about this a lot, participatory cultures. And then there's Mirko Schaefer, who wrote a book called Bastard Culture that kind of dives into how these explicit ways that people participate, like responding to a discussion forum thread or retweeting something, but then there are implicit ways, like what you were mentioning, a teacher might just go on, read something, and then go and apply all the stuff, but you can't measure that because you don't know what happened with it. So it's a fascinating like conundrum that you have in terms of you don't really know how people are engaging with this, even if you are able to like measure how many likes or retweets or whatever, like that doesn't really tell you the kind of impact you have. And I mean, the same is true, though, if we think about it as educators, sure. A teacher, you can measure impact on an assessment at the end of the year. You might even be able to extrapolate that out to kind of access in the future. So, you know, perhaps it's a, you know, they take your APCSP course and then do they enter into a computer science major in college or something like that. But then we also think about the ways in which teachers plant seeds <laughs> that they never see, you know, go into fruition. I think the same is true that there could be, you know, things that are a part of listening in and hearing conversations or seeing the way things are done that maybe isn't an immediate, but it is something in the future. So even with that kind of thinking longitudinally, it's even harder <laughs> to kind of determine because some of those things may not, you know, come into being until much later on. Even to do like a survey at the end of the year, maybe there's not something until three years later that someone puts into effect. Right. But it was because of, you know, they would be able to tell you that it goes back, but, you know, we don't have the sort of tracking mechanism or, you know, even as sophisticated as an evaluation to be able to kind of look at that information over time. Yeah, that makes sense. What was something that like you thought would be a really great idea for the community and then ended up not working so well? I think that's something that we continue to think about and kind of really determine. And we do try to be very much like a learning project or a learning community. So with CS for All Teachers, you know, one of the things for sure that we recognize is that teachers come to us as members with very different needs and very different backgrounds. And so we had to think about like, what are ways that we can kind of support any number of folks? And I remember working with our web developers some years back and they were like, well, tell us about your target audience. <laughs> we were kind of like, oh, that's funny. K-12 teachers. We're like, well, try to narrow that down. And I'm like, can't really do that. You know, they were like, well, are they this or are they that? And I'm like, could be, could be not. You know, it is such a space where, you know, it's hard to kind of say, and even thinking about like how the identity of teachers, we, you know, for expediency sake, I'll often say, you know, we support computer science teachers, but really I prefer to say with a project, teachers of computer science or teachers of computational thinking, because often they don't identify themselves as computer science teachers. And that came to conversations years ago with the previous executive director at CSTA, but, you know, he told me about a survey they had done and many of the members themselves don't see themselves as computer science teachers. All of that said, kind of something that we've learned is that I think it's one of those things of with discussion threads, more often than not, they do not participate in discussion threads. 
just because it's a different kind of it's a an older way of connecting. And so we have a group of folks, again, I spoke earlier about one of the biggest things or key things I did was to find the good teachers. And so a model that we've created through the years has been to identify, select and support a group of teacher leaders that we call community ambassadors to help run and lead the virtual community, that these are teachers that are in the classroom or they may have moved into other spaces that they have experience with teaching computer science or computational thinking. And so they often get frustrated because they're like, oh, we post something and people may not respond. And I'm like, well, again, you never know with what you post may have an impact. (laughs) Again, you may not see it in a response from someone, but I think it's good to have that so people one, can either access that information on a regular period of time and or can know it's okay if I have a question that I can post it there or have a, you know, something that I want to discuss with others. So I think it's sort of that of like, and more broadly thinking about that as a technology evolves, how do we evolve the sorts of supports that we provide and ensuring that when you have a very diverse group of teachers that you're trying to support, how can you offer a little bit of everything depending on what they need? So we're continuing to learn and grow with that for sure. So having had experience with CS for All teachers, like I understand the platform, but if somebody's listening to this and we've kind of talked around it, what would be like your elevator pitch for like, here's the problem that this addresses and how we hope that people engage with this platform? I love that you asked that because that's one of the first things we do with our community ambassadors is work with them on develop your elevator pitch. (laughs) Our CS for All Teachers virtual community is a free space, free virtual community for teachers anywhere from pre-K on up to grade 12 to come to connect with others who are also teaching and interested in computer science and computational thinking. You get access to discussion groups, webinars, resources multimedia products, et cetera. It's a space where you can come to learn and grow with others. Again, it's free. It is open to any and all. And really is about, you know, kind of helping those educators who may not have another point of connection or, you know, networking opportunity to be able to get access to some others. And we certainly don't see ourselves as the end-all be-all of all things computer science, but certainly see it as a space to kind of get folks started and thinking about where they can connect with the things they need to be successful. So one of the things that a lot of people have talked about is like in relation to learning informally or through virtual or connected environments is drawing from many different approaches. So I'm curious, what kind of approach would you recommend for a teacher who is using CS for all teachers? How do you help them also connect through other platforms like Twitter or other social media platforms or other listservs or discussion forum groups? Like how does it all kind of like work together? Yeah, we get that question a lot too. And I think what I normally tell folks is, and this goes for like anything when you're trying to kind of dip your foot in, if you will, into the virtual world. What I usually tell folks is start small. Because I think what often happens is you're starting to learn something new, you're teaching a new subject, you are teaching a new grade level, you know, you just want to expand your learning that oftentimes what we can do is go out there and we click to follow this, we join that, you know, we sign up for that. And then it becomes so overwhelming that you end up ignoring everything. (laughs) Right. So one of the things that I recommend is start small. So whether it's with CS for All Teachers or any of the other sites that are out there, sign up kind of get, you know, take some time to look around, look and see what's there, then kind of figure out, okay, 
get a better sense of what it is that you're looking for, you're interested in. We try to do as much as we can to help promote what's happening with other organizations. And so, you know, for example, CSTA and their conference for next year, the time period for putting in a proposal has just been happening now. And so one of our community ambassadors did a webinar about, well, what do you do if you want to present at CSTA and kind of did that. And CWIT has their annual student and teacher awards program. And so we're putting out information to our community for that. And so I think, again, finding one place or space to start and then, you know, seeing what else is out there and then, you know, kind of adding on is super helpful. The same thing for Twitter. I think certainly finding a few organizations or people that you trust and have some good content, following those people to start, then kind of, as you notice, following accounts and then starting to follow certain hashtags. Certainly, you know, the CSK8 is a great one or KCS, whichever direction it goes. I can never remember that. (laughs) Following some hashtags and that opens your eyes to others as well. And then I think the other key thing is that (laughs) it's okay to unsubscribe or unfollow if you just after a while are kind of like, hmm, this isn't really something, I'm not really finding anything of value, or this is too overwhelming, like that's okay too. Because again, it would be better that whichever it is, we hope you would find, you know, our CS for All teachers community space and or our Twitter account something helpful. But for any of them, if it becomes too overwhelming or you're not getting what you need, unsubscribe, unfollow, and then try to help curate it in a way that's better. Don't feel like, you know, because there's nothing worse of getting, you know, 12 emails every day because you're on so many different and connected with so many different groups and feeling like you just delete all of them because you just don't have the time to look at anything at all. Like find a couple that you find of value, start there and then kind of branch out. Yeah, that's a good point. That reflects my own journey through it, like dabbling and then diving deep into like social media as a learning community. And now I check it once a week and it's like 10 minutes at most just because I have other avenues that I use to continue to learn and grow and whatnot. So one of the things that I worked with like undergrad or graduate students and trying to help them consider like platforms is we talk about the affordances and constraints of it. What does this allow you to do? What does this prevent you from doing? I'm curious, if somebody's looking for platforms to use, what affordances and constraints might they consider? If a teacher wants like up-to-date information on something, cool, you might want Twitter. If you want something that is more thoughtful in terms of what people are posting, you might want to look at somebody's blog or like a discussion forum, etc. I think a couple of things that come to mind. One, regardless of what kind of platform is looking at how recent is the last information that's been added is key for me. (laughs) And working with folks through the years who have been interested in creating any kind of platform, you know, I've often used the kind of analogy that sometimes people have this idea of like, if you build it, they will come, right? We know that from the movies, right? But my thought is, if you build it, they may come, but they're not going to stay <laughs> if they don't find that the information is there's a constant flow of up-to-date information. And so when I'm talking to people on the other side of those who are building or wanting to create it, one of the very first questions I always have is, so whose responsibility is it going to be to keep it fresh and updated? Because you can't just do it or whatever. So on the flip side, as the user, that would be the first thing that I'd look for is looking at when's the last time this has been updated. 
And, you know, understanding that we're also in a kind of a difficult place here, that things may be a little bit different and give some people a little bit of grace if it's not been as frequent, could be other factors due to COVID and everything else and just life being a little bit different this year. But certainly if there's not been anything new that's been added in a year plus, eh, probably not worth your time to do that because you're not going to get from it the things that you need. So that would be number one. And then also, I think it would be thinking through what is it, you know, kind of what is it that you're looking for? Like, is it, you know, kind of it, and that's more of addressing it for your own self and your own needs. Are you interested in something because you want access to information? Are you interested in something because you want a community? Those are a few different things as well. So again, it's kind of the, you know, reflecting yourself and maybe you don't know, but I think that's something that's helpful because again, and this is kind of part of the conversations I have with people as they're building it, it's like, you can have something that's more of like a resource repository, but that's fine. And there's a legitimate, you know, reason to have something like that. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's a virtual community, right? Sharing resources is way different than building community. And so, again, I think so from the user perspective, I think it would be considering that as well. There's some spaces and places that you can get access to both of those things. But, you know, I think kind of stepping back and trying to figure out what's best for you is, would be one of those. Like, again, what's the last time of update and kind of frequency of update would be question one. And then like, what's my purpose for getting engaged and then trying to kind of figure out those places. And also too, I think I would add a third one maybe that's like, how are you wanting to access this information from the perspective of like, I'm very, and this is just how I do things. Other people are different. But when I access Facebook, for instance, Facebook, I want to be kind of my personal space zone out to do things of personal interest. Mm -hmm. I don't connect with professional related groups through Facebook because it's just the space where I want to have my social personal life. And I use other spaces, like Twitter is more for professional reasons. And so I think also considering what kind of like what your personality and what your preferences are, if you're someone that's like, I don't have time to be going to these different places, I just need everything in one place, then that could be something else to consider than look professional groups or, you know, resources in the places where you already are versus starting a new platform. But all that truly is kind of personal preference as well. Yeah, that's a really good point about having like different platforms for different purposes and whatnot and not mixing the two. My wife is really good at that. Being in like my feet in two different fields, there's like this interesting mix of a lot of CS educators tend to prefer like Twitter, but then a lot of music educators tend to prefer connecting on Facebook. So it's like this weird like blend of like personal and professional for those platforms, at least for me. How has COVID impacted your thoughts on virtual learning communities? I've been working remotely for six years now. And so, you know, when COVID hit, there really wasn't much change to my work life or my work schedule because I was already working from home and will continue that way. I do think that in general, but also specific to virtual communities as a, you know, as a professional support. But I think we have to figure out how to turn things on and turn things off. And I think about with educators that educators have always been ones to kind of take their work home. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, they finish the day at school, but then inevitably at home, 
you know, when they should maybe be putting more time and attention to family and, you know, personal things or whatever that, you know, they've been doing that in between trying to grade papers or respond to parents via email or whatever the kids preparing the next day's lessons and things like that. And so I definitely believe that as much as I said earlier, that virtual communities of value. And in this time of, of COVID, when we can't be face-to-face, they truly can be a lifeline, either personally, professionally, whatever else, you know, academically, emotionally, whatever ways that you need it. But I think just like anything that we've got to figure out, like when to turn it on and when to turn it off, because particularly in this time when it is so stressful and there's so many things going on that, you know, finding balance is really key. And so, you know, not allowing it and this time when it's just so much harder to start and stop the workday that it, you know, it can be tough when you're like, oh, well, I see this great message and I want to respond to this. Like, okay, yeah, but you've been sitting in this chair for how many hours now? Maybe you should go do something else. And so <laughs> right. there is value, but there's also the need for not allowing it to take over, particularly when we don't have the same kind of boundaries that we've had before for the most part, when there's a start and stop to your work day, I think we have to do the same thing with this because, and that's something, you know, we've been mindful of, you know, we know that teachers are on Zoom all day. And so while we're offering, you know, webinars, we've been talking too about, do we need to shorten them? We have them for an hour, but do we even need to shorten a little bit more because people are got so much Zoom fatigue or, or, you know, pick your choice of webinar tool fatigue and being able to kind of give a little bit more of a break that. So how do you try and take breaks from that or try and prevent the burnout? There's a lot of educators right now who are just completely overwhelmed, have too much on their plate, are taking it home because they are working at home, etc. So what strategies have you recommended for that? One thing for sure has been, and this you know may or may not be possible for teachers when they're online with their students, but certainly there's some meetings that were I just cut my camera off and just like, I'm here, I'm listening, I'm focused, but I just can't do the camera right now. Because there certainly is something about, you know, looking at your own image or just like, oh, that's interesting. What's that picture back there behind his head? Or, oh, look at the dog. Is that a dog in the background? You know, we get so distracted by so many things. And, you know, sometimes having that, that like truly we did work before virtually without having to see into people's homes all day, every day. Some of it is just cutting the camera off time and still being able to stay, you know, stay focused, stay connected, but not having to have the camera on. Something that I'm trying to do more is, like I just said, like, honestly, get up and just change scenery. A friend of mine said this, you know, it's like going and looking out the window or sitting outside and just like focusing on a bug crawling on the ground. It's like just bringing your attention to something else that you know, is away from where you are. But I'll be honest and say it is tough because, you know, whereas even though I worked from home, there generally was something in the evening that was taking me away from sitting here. So whether it was, oh, I'm going to go to the grocery store or, you know, everyone's favorite going to Target or I have a meeting that I have to drive to or some other thing that I'm doing that was physically taking me away from home, that's not really happening as much. Like, oh, I have a meeting again on Zoom. Or, or, you know, my grocery store is going to pick it up because I've ordered it online or it's being delivered or whatever the case may be. And so I think we really do have to be intentional with that. And a big, big part of it, I think, is changing your scenery. But again, maybe moving your desk a little bit or 
going and looking out a different window as you're working. I think all of those things help. Yeah, that's a good point. Being in Arizona, it gets really hot and the room that I'm recording this in like gets a lot of direct sunlight throughout the day. And so I would have the window shut for most of the summer. But like now that it's nice, I'm able to actually look out the window and it's nice having that to be able to just look a little to the right and cool. I can actually see outside. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I'm a very big practice nerd. I love learning about learning, but also learning about how we refine our abilities and understandings. And so I'm curious, how do you practice or iterate on your abilities, either as like an educator or as a researcher? Regardless of kind of the work that I do, CS for All Teachers is just one of several projects that I work on, but they all to a certain extent deal with having to react in the moment and not always being able to have like kind of a rehearsed script there that you can pull from. And particularly that comes through webinars. The work at AIR starting in the spring and leading to the summer when, when a lot of organizations and clients that we were working with started to realize, okay, those face-to-face meetings that we thought we were going to be having, now we need to figure out how to do them virtually. And so for sure, webinars and being able to practice with webinars and going through and doing them and using this technology, whether it's been for my church activities that I'm involved with, or it's, you know, civic groups that I'm connected with, using some of the same tools that I use at work or virtual conferences or virtual meetings that we're doing. I've been using those same tools with these other things that I do personally. And it certainly, that has helped because It allows me to kind of consider the variety of stakeholders that may need support. (laughs) So I use the example of at church, we've been having kind of a book study. And so we had been using, I've been introduced to Google's new tool, Jamboard, that allows people to like brainstorm and put like sticky notes on the screen, et cetera. So I decided to use that with our book study with my church group, who happen to be a number of older (laughs) congregants. (laughs) So being able to deal with the, what do I do? Where's the link? How do I click on this? (laughs) While it was like a delightfully fun exercise, you know, kind of leading them through and teaching them newer technology it allowed me to kind of have that practice of what do I do when I am doing something professionally and there's that person that like needs that help and is interrupting the group and how do I redirect and what does that look like? And so I guess that's probably one of the ways of like, you know, as virtual has been required for kind of so many more parts of my life, I've haven't hesitated to kind of pull in those other tools because again it gives me a a chance to practice with a broader group of stakeholders that certainly helps to support in the actual work that we do professionally and help me think through what some of those strategies need to look like yeah that's a funny little story that definitely resonates to like watching some of the recordings of our virtual pd that we've been providing like seeing different teachers responding differently to whatever platform or tool we're using it's kind of comical at sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Nothing humbles you more than helping an older loved one trying to figure out their phone or their laptop. And yeah, trying to do that virtually makes it even more comical. So 
absolutely. What recommendations do you have for improving equity and inclusion in computer science education? First of all, I'm happy that that's entering more of our conversations, regardless of what the topic area is. And, you know, as, as we think about, you mentioned earlier, trying to find the positive out of some negative situations, I think that the racial unrest, you know, the issues of police brutality, and all of that that also happened this summer on top of everything else that was going on with the pandemic has certainly brought that to the forefront in many places where it wasn't before. And I think it's became, I don't want to say it in this way, but in some ways like more in vogue or, you know, the new thing to do is talk equity and access. My hope is that that isn't a short-lived situation. Right. And that it doesn't become kind of like, oh, there's something new that kind of, we don't have to talk. We've done that check. We've got equity and access and we figured that out. Right. One of the things that I have certainly appreciated within computer science education specifically is that I think that there is a core group of advocates within the field who are refusing to allow this to just be kind of a one-time conversation. First of all, they've been talking about this pre-summer 2020. Right. It's been a kind of the foreground and, you know, been an integral part. So I think about that in terms of, you know, equity and access isn't just about recruiting diverse stakeholders or diverse students into the field like computer science education. It's ensuring that when they get there, they feel included. They feel like they deserve a seat just as much as anyone else. They feel like that their diverse backgrounds, interests, and needs are considered not as an afterthought, but more, you know, that's, that's part of the planning. And then you get them in the door, you make them feel comfortable when they're there, and then you're also giving them the skills they need to pursue whatever comes next for them. Right. I think that's a huge bonus of where many programs are, you know, looking to do that. Many people, programs, advocates, et cetera, are doing that in CS education. I think back to one of our guest speakers. So last year, 2019, AIR was asked to host the PI or principal investigator meeting for the CS for All Research Practitioner Partnership Project with NSF. So we brought together a cross-section of projects and we had guest speakers. And I remember clearly one of them, Kalia Braswell, phenomenal young woman, a Black woman who has done amazing things already. She was herself a computer scientist. She worked for Apple. But she talked about in her keynote about how, you know, there was so much effort to ensure a diverse group of folks were, you know, hired into the company. And I don't mean to pinpoint Apple as just one of them. That was just from her example. She talked about how, you know, again, they got her there, but the conditions weren't such that she always necessarily felt comfortable as a Black woman in the organization. And she also talked about how she chose to live in Oakland much farther than others may have chosen to live because she wanted to feel like she had a community of people who looked like her when she went home. And so I think it speaks to, you know, again, we have to do a better job that when we talk about equity and we talk about access, it goes all the way through the spectrum. It's not enough to recruit folks into the classes and then not provide classroom cultures to support them in their success. 
it's not enough to do to provide them with the culture to make them feel successful and not give them the skills and support they need to then go into whatever career perspective that they're interested in. And so I think it's certainly something that all fields, all organizations should be thinking about. And again, I hope that it's not something that, you know, is a passing trend, but we continue to hold this as key. So many companies came out this summer with, you know, statements of we support and believe all Black Lives Matter and, you know, all these other statements that were put out that address issues of equity and access. But now what? Right. (laughs) You know, what happens six months later? What happens a year later? Have those same organizations changed their own cultures, their own philanthropic support? You know, is it continuing and not just? kind of that one-time fad. So many points really resonated with that, especially the discussion on like diversity. It's not just enough to get the demographics that you're trying to target and whatnot. You need to do much more than, okay, now we have the numbers we're looking for. Like you have to provide the support. You have to make it a welcoming environment, et cetera. So I really appreciated that. I'm curious about what do you wish there was more research on that could inform what you're interested in in computer science and just education in general? I can't consider that question in 2020 without thinking about what difference this year is going to have on students learning. You know, there was a part of me that just said, you know what, guys, what if we just took a break? (laughs) We skipped this year, 2020, 2021. We just didn't have school. Like we just took a break, you know, and that's the kind of, I mean, how do you do that? Like, I know that can't really happen, but, you know, there was just a part of me that, you know, thinks about like how much this has also put extreme pressure on teachers, on families, and on students to meet these guidelines, standards, requirements, whatever you want to call it, that just frankly, in the grand scheme of things, aren't that important. (laughs) Like if nothing else from this year, I think for me personally, and I hope with others that we've realized that some of those things that we just thought were so critical, they're really not. Like when we get down to it, they're not. You know, the places I thought I was, I had to go this year or things that had to happen or things I had to have, I didn't. You know, I survived without all these things and I'm going to be okay. And I think in the same way, I hope that as we study this year and what the impact that it's had, that we don't just focus on the learning loss, although I understand it's there. Can we also investigate, you know, I'm not a total fan of all these words, but like the grit, the resilience, the strength, the whatever else you want to throw into that category that we've all had to develop in order just to get through it. And that goes across the board, you know, especially for, you know, teachers and parents who have taken on a lot of this to try to protect the kids from going through it. Right. You know, I struggle with trying to kind of figure out what's the best way forward with wanting a desire for, you know, getting back to normal, whatever that means, but also, you know, extreme desire of how do we stay safe in the process. Right. And you know, I just really hope that generally speaking, the research doesn't bear out that schools have failed us 
because I don't think by any means they have. <laughs> schools are being asked to take on way more responsibility. Right. Schools have always been asked to take on tons of responsibility, but that, you know, instead that there's some opportunities for us to really highlight the ways that schools, teachers, administrators, and all, you know, what they have been able to provide students throughout all of this. I'm hopeful that somebody's taking a look at that <laughs> and, you know, kind of keeping that in the floor. And frankly, though, too, the other piece of that I would say, and something that we at AIR have done, too, is, you know, we talk a lot about social emotional learning or social emotional supports for students. I think the same needs to be true for teachers and, you know, figuring out what we can do, because my fear is we may be facing some really massive teacher shortages because teachers are just totally burnt out. I mean, I've already seen that. I know in some of the numbers, there's been some, you know, early retirements or, you know, teachers just saying, I'll figure something else out because I can't handle this. But again, my mind always goes to those larger system issues that we need to be considering so that we have the support systems in place that allow for everyone to be successful. Yeah, it'll be interesting like a decade or two from now to reflect back on what it felt like and then what the research will come out of this year and next year, etc. Especially in relation to learning and like you're mentioning, even just like mental and physical health of everyone involved, whether it's students, teachers, family members, etc. I'm curious, do you have any questions for myself or for the field? I guess from your perspective, Jared, and I love that you do this, I'm wondering what has been like some of your biggest takeaways from these conversations, such a cross-section of folks in the field? This kind of relates to a general frame of mind that I have, but there's always so much to learn and so many perspectives that I hadn't considered. And so now we're in November And so the first podcast released October of last year. So like over a year of doing interviews and whatnot, I've just learned so much from listening to all these different perspectives and people with expertise that I don't have any expertise on or very little. And so it's been a fascinating growth opportunity for me going through this, both with the interviews and then the unpacking scholarship episodes where it's like, okay, I'm going to publicly basically reflect on some scholarship that I've read and kind of share those understandings. So it's been a, an interesting growth opportunity for me. So I've enjoyed it and I look forward to continue to do it. So I don't know if that answers your question. No, that's great. Great. Do you have any suggestions on how I could improve this podcast? I don't have any suggestions for improvement. I would just say I really do appreciate, you know, your looking for diversity and perspectives. I always think that's helpful. And the more that we can do to amplify such differing perspectives is always helpful in bringing those to light. And as much as possible, I think, again, like when you think about computer science education, again, getting back to there are so many different pathways into the field and helping people to see that. It helps people feel better about themselves because they can see that, hey, you know, I'm no different from you, that I came in in a very (laughs) circuitous path or whatever. I think it's hugely helpful. Yeah, that's a good point. It would be interesting to even do like a an analysis of like the backgrounds of the guests who have been on the show to see like who has backgrounds in CS and to what extent, etc. But that would just be for my own interest. (laughs) (laughs) I guess the last question is, where might people go to connect with you and the organizations that you work with? Sure. So certainly we would love to, if anyone is not yet a member or just want to check it out, 
the CS for All Teachers site is just csforallteachers.org. You can also find us on Twitter. I'd have to give you that hashtag. I don't have it. It's like CS for All Teachers, but teachers is P-C-H-R-S. That was back when there was a limited number for their Twitter handle. So to take away some of the vowels there. And then I'm also on Twitter at Mel, M-E-L, Raspberry, R-A-S-B-E-R-R-Y. So would love to have folks to connect and would love to talk more about interest. I'm always excited to talk to people, particularly those who have kind of had a different route into this space. And frankly, also just kind of have had a interesting career in education. I never would have placed myself here back when I was that season in undergrad, but it's a pleasure to have this opportunity to learn and grow in education in different ways. And with that, that concludes this week's episode of the CSK8 podcast. I really do hope that you check out CS for All Teachers and join the community discussions that are going on there. Stay tuned next week for another Unpacking Scholarship episode and two weeks from now for another interview. But between now and then, if you would be so kind, please consider sharing or writing a review so we can continue to help other CS educators around the world. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you all have a wonderful and safe week.